Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is June 6th, and this is the Wednesday healthcare edition of the show. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I have healthcare specialist Todd Campbell on the line. Welcome to the show, Todd. Hi, Christine. Uh, it's going to be an interesting show today for listeners because we're going to be talking about probably one of the toughest things for investors to do, which is sticking with stocks when they stumble, right? Absolutely. Yes. So earlier today, I had a great conversation with Jeff Fisher, who is the lead advisor on Motley Fool Pro. And we were talking about big biotech today. Um, in, in particular, he made this really good comparison to big pharma a couple of decades ago, where these stocks had been darlings for so long until the patent cliff walloped them and newer treatments came out and the stocks completely fell out of favor. And now, 20 years later, it kind of looks like the market is getting the same sort of view of big biotech. Some of the companies that we talk about the most on this show have gotten clobbered. In particular, we get questions all the time about Gilead Sciences and Celgene, which are two stocks that we talk about a ton on Industry Focus, and I know a lot of listeners hold in their portfolios, but they've been such poor performers over the last few years. So today, we're going to tackle the question of why have they declined so much, and also, what do we expect going forward for them? This is a topic that's going to be, you know, I'm sure interesting to a lot of our listeners. It's also interesting to me, and I don't know, maybe to you, Christine. I, I actually own both of these companies in my own retirement account, and I am, sadly, down on both of them. I mean, I'm down about 18% on Gilead, and I'm about 28% down on Celgene. And I think that one of the things that, that you know, people always end up asking me, and they probably ask you too, Christine, is what do I do with this, with this stock? I'm down on it. And you kind of have to go back and understand why why it fell and what your catalyst or the reason behind you buying it in the first place was, whether or not that still remains intact, and then what it is that's coming down you know, in the future that could um, maybe get these stocks back on track. So I think this is an important show. And you know, how do we want to start, Christine? Are we going to want to just dive into Gilead, or you, what, what, how do you want to approach it? Sure, let's do Gilead first. I'm in the same boat as you, Todd. I don't know if we bought around the same time. I think the first time I bought Gilead Sciences was right around when Savaldi was first approved. So I'm also down about 20% on the position. So there was a lot of hype about the this stock's hepatitis C franchise, starting with that first approval of Savaldi a few years back. And basically, it was kind of boom and bust. This uh, These drugs skyrocketed and sold billions and billions of dollars worth. And then, just as quickly, they dropped off a cliff. And so, I think the lingering question now with this company is, have hepatitis C sales stabilized? And we'll provide some more context around that. But I think that is question number one. And then question number two, what else do they have going on? This is a company that really made its name in HIV before it ever had any HCV drugs. And so how is that franchise doing? Can we still count on it? And then also, what other newer growth opportunities do they have? So laying out that structure, uh, we'll talk HCV, HIV, and then new growth opportunities. Sound good? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they are a victim of their own success. The the launch of Heart of Savaldi in early 2014, followed up by uh, Harvoni later on that year, I think it was October. Those were game-changing drugs. I mean, you took an indication that could cause a uh, major cause of, of life-threatening liver disease, um, and you provided a functional cure for the first time for patients. And you know that was that was just revolutionary, fantastic science. And of course, there were so many people. Uh, it's a very very prevalent um, disease, and there were so many people with advanced cases of that disease that were just waiting for this revolutionary new treatment to launch. That sales roared out of the gate. Didn't hurt that these were expensive drugs either, right, Christine? Yep, absolutely. Right. I mean, these these things launched with eighty eighty thousand dollar plus uh, price tags for a twelve. 12-week course of treatment. I think it was like $1,000 a pill when Savaldi was was launched. And, you know, combine a high price with crazy good efficacy in a huge patient population, it's little wonder that at one point, the HCV franchise was bringing in sales at about a $20 billion annualized clip. And to put that sheer size of that market opportunity in, in perspective, if you annualize the sales that Gilead Science just reported in the first quarter, it's about 20 billion. So that just goes to show you how uh, much hepatitis C sales have fallen off over the last few years. And I think, Christine, you'd probably agree with me that there's a few different things that are going on in contributing to that. You have more competition, which of course has created a, a bit of a price war, but you've also got a scenario where you know you have fewer late stage patients to treat. So your wrestling market, because your drug's so effective, has has shrunk. Yeah. So it's important to recognize that that is a good thing, that last statement there, that the patient population is shrinking because people are being cured. That's amazing from a human perspective. But when you look at the business, it also leads to declining sales. Plus, when you add in competition, primarily from AbbVie, for example, AbbVie just released a drug called Maviret, which is the first treatment that treats all different types of hepatitis C, where previously you had different drugs for the different genotypes. And it only takes eight weeks, as opposed to the prior standard of care from uh, from Gilead Sciences, Epclusa, which was a 12-week treatment. And so it's kind of a no-brainer that people would prefer the eight weeks. And so these companies have kind of gone back and forth about who has the better drug that can treat more people with greater efficacy. And well, actually, they're all incredibly effective, but with uh, a fewer, a, a, a shorter treatment duration. But when it comes down to it, when you look at the numbers, this franchise has been on the decline for a while now. Right now, they're looking at about a $4 billion uh, 2018 sales rate just for those HCV drugs. In the first quarter, they brought in $1 billion, so they're on track for that projection. But that $1 billion was down 59% year over year. And that's not the first time that we've seen these sales go down. And quarter after quarter, I keep hearing analysts and even management say that the stabilization is coming soon. But the big question is, where exactly are these sales going to stabilize? It's my impression that AbbVie is going to continue to innovate. Gilead's going to continue to compete on price. And all the while, they're going to be curing more and more people and having to reach out to patient populations that are either harder to reach or that 
don't have as uh, advanced stages of the disease, and so it might be harder for these folks to get insurance coverage. I think it's only going to get harder for them. And so that's a big question mark for me, is I don't know where exactly this bottom floor line will be. I wrote an article earlier this year that actually raised the question, did Gilead Science make a mistake in deciding to shelve any additional R&D into this indication, for example, trying to drive treatment duration down to, say, four weeks or two weeks or one dose and you're done. Maybe, right? Because Maverick seems to has, have the, the best, be the best drug on the market in the indication right now, uh, as evidenced by the fact that, you know, it's raking in uh, a couple billion sales and, you know, hepatitis C's, the market share is shifting away from Gilead Science to AbbVie. And I don't think that that's going to change. You've got a smaller addressable patient pool. Now, make no mistake, right? Four billion in, in, in annualized sales. I mean, most biotech companies would love to have products raking in $4 billion in sales. But again, it's the rate of change that's been the concern for investors. And there's really no evidence yet in 2018, going back to the question you asked at the beginning of the show or the top of the show, was, you know, is this going to be the year where we finally get that trouble, where we can say, okay, you know, we're going to get better from here. We are at least stabilizing. And then maybe as additional new patients are diagnosed with the disease, then we can at least maintain where we are today, maybe grow a little bit. I don't think you can say that yet with Gilead Sciences. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on the other parts of its business, the HIV business, and thanks to their acquisition last year of Kite Farmer, their gene therapy business. Absolutely. So let's talk about HIV a little bit. So currently, Gilead is in the process of switching over the patients that are on their medications from these cocktail regimens that contain an older drug called TDF to a newer one that has similar efficacy but a better side effect profile called TAF, T-A-F. So in February, they launched a TAF combination therapy called Bictarvi that is projected to be the best-selling new drug to me, to reach the market this entire year. This is something that management of Gilead Sciences has said it will be its best drug ever. It's been referred to as Gilead's Mount Everest. So, ton of excitement about Bictarvi. Um, but right now, it kind of looks like that switch from TDF to TAF has been about net neutral, where the HIV segment as a whole has been roughly flat with sales. What they've been able to do is innovate new therapies that reduce patient burden. We already know, I mean, HIV has become much more of a chronic disease than it was in the past because of Gilead, large part due to the, the Gilead Sciences drugs that it's launched in the past. So turning it into a chronic disease, the next step then was to say, okay, well, how can we reduce patient burden and make these drugs safer? And one of the ways that they've done that is be able to take the various drugs that they had developed as individual medicines, combine them together into single tablet regimens. And these single tablet regimens really has been what's been driving uh, HIV sales and maintaining their market share over the course of the last three years or so, as you mentioned, um, the reformulation of the drug Viriate in, into TAF and then reformulating all of their accommodation therapies so that it includes TAF instead of that older drug. And what you're seeing now with the launch of Victarvi this earlier this year is, you know, okay, we 
feel like we're we're the the we've got a certain number of patients, obviously, that we're that are being treated for HIV, right? And those patients are being treated chronically. There are some other competitors out there in the space that that we have to make sure that we're innovate, still innovating to maintain our market share there. And that's what these drugs are doing. And Bictarvi, though, isn't necessarily just going to be winning away market share from those other competitors, though. It's also going to be winning away market share from its existing drugs because every time you make a pill that's smaller and easier to take or that's you know got the same efficacy but that actually has a better safety profile you're not just going to win away business from other people you're going to actually cannibalize your own sales and that's kind of where they are at right now and what they're projecting going forward i think that they're still saying that hiv is going to be a growth franchise for them but it wouldn't be right i don't think to expect that that growth franchise is going to produce anything more than single digit growth, maybe low double digit over the course of the next couple of years anyways. Right. And that cannibalization is something that we also saw going back to hepatitis C. This past quarter, Savaldi, which was the first of Gilead Sciences HCV drugs to be approved, didn't even get its own line item in Gilead's latest quarterly report. And that's because they innovated. They came up with better and better and better still drugs, which caused the older drug to not be used as much. But anyway, one growth opportunity that I do want to point out in HIV before we move on to the other growth opportunities for Gilead is in PrEP which is for prevention of HIV. Um, Truvada right now is being used uh, for PrEP. There are about 167,000 people currently on it, but there is a lot of of, uh, attention being put on this that they could potentially reach many, many more patients who are at risk of HIV and get them on these drugs, potentially even moving over to a TAF-based cocktail such as Descovy um, for PrEP. And this could, according to management itself, be just as important within the HIV segment as treatment of patients that actively have the disease itself. So that's pretty huge. And, you know, that's uh, it remains to be seen whether or not it will actually grow that large. But I'm hopeful because it's it's an amazing thing to be able to prevent somebody from contracting HIV in the first place. So they've been talking about that for years now, Christine. And, you know, Trivada, I suppose that one of the, the upsides there is that while a lot of its other older legacy drugs have have seen cannibalization, like you mentioned, Trivada's sales have fallen off by far less. And that's because in the U.S., you saw 9% year-over-year growth in the first quarter for Truvada because of preventative. The thing that investors need to remember, though, is Truvada is an old drug, and its patent protection is going to expire. And that's where this next trial, and you alluded to, is Discovy. Next trial evaluating it in the as a as a prep treatment is so important because obviously, if Truvada goes off patent and Discovy's trial falls short, then you know it's that that prep market's going to end up being dominated by generics. So in the HIV space, that's going to be something that our investors are going to want to pay a lot of attention to. Yep, that's a great point. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. 
To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. So moving on to other growth opportunities for Gilead Sciences, there are three that stand out to me. And even as I say that, I realize that this show is potentially going to be kind of long. So we will move through them relatively quickly. The first one that I want to highlight is in Nash. This one has gotten a ton of attention from investors because of how big this disease space could potentially be. So Nash is a progressive fatty liver disease that is estimated to become the leading cause of liver transplants by 2020. And it it blows my mind just how prevalent this disease is and how big it could potentially be. I, I've read estimates that in nations with fatty diets, so that would be the United States, there are estimates that 5 to 20% of the population is affected by this disease. And it's growing too, because that sort of diet and, and the obesity and the diabetes that go along with it are also growing at astonishing rates. And so right now, there are no approved treatments for NASH. And yet Gilead looks like it, it could potentially be first to market or uh, best in class here. There's a lot of competitors working on NASH drugs though. And yes, yes you're right, Gilead Sciences is, is theoretically in the lead. They've got a phase three drug, Sloan-Sertiv, easy for me to say. Uh, that's going to have data next year. And theoretically, it could go in front of regulators as soon as by the end of next year. But you've got other companies out there like Intercept that are also developing drugs for NASH. One of the things that investors need to recognize is that the NASH market is kind of like uncharted territory. We don't know what the size of the market is. I mean, you could you could look at this pa- patient population and say, yes, yeah, as big as the diabetes patient population, but people aren't really actively being treated for this disease yet. And frankly, it's kind of a silent disease, Christine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that you're going to have to figure out is how are you going to diagnose or evaluate these patients, find them, and then move them into treatment? And, you know, how much will payers be willing to pay for a drug that addresses such a large patient pool. So without a doubt, very intriguing opportunity ahead. Uh, Just a couple concerns or things that people need to bear in mind as that data comes out next year. Yep, absolutely. Um, but I do think that they have experience in similar spaces. I think that it, uh, the Nash market bears a lot of resemblance to both HIV and HCV, where people might not even realize that they have the disease. It is potentially really huge, but it's also complex. Different types of patients have different types of the disease. And so it'll require various combinations of different treatments put together in a cocktail to adequately address the needs of different patients. But hopefully, salons Sertib, which is Gilead's lead candidate here, um, could become the backbone of a really large franchise. So next growth opportunity that I want to touch on is with anti-inflammatory. So there's a drug called filgotinib that Gilead is working on with their partner, Galapagos. It's a JAK1 inhibitor, so it's kind of similar to a drug called Zelgans, which was already approved back in 2012 for rheumatoid arthritis patients. Um, Rheumatoid arthritis is a disease where it's fairly common. Um, It's an inflammatory disease that is not always um, adequately controlled by the standard of care. And so that's why you get these new JAK inhibitors and other approaches to treating the disease. If the drug reaches the market, which would be in a few years, if all goes well, peak annual sales are estimated to be between two and three billion. Again, data coming out soon. You're going to have the first trial, uh, phase three trial readout data later this year in patients who are uh, don't respond well to anti-TNF therapy. So that would be drugs like the, four, uh, actually, what, $18 billion a year uh, Humira. 
Um, that data is going to come out, or like I said, later this year. And then you've got trial results coming out early next year as well in RA. RA obviously being a massive mega blockbuster indication, but similar to NASH, there's a lot of other people who are working on next generation drugs for RA. So you've got a competitive field. And one of the things that's going to be really interesting here is how will Gilead Sciences uh, position filgotinib to be able to win market share against some of these other drugs. Now, the question's been asked of Gilead Sciences, what they're saying, Christine, is that their drug is way more effective uh, and, and potentially safer because it's more selective. It's a better targeting uh, drug for the Jack uh, family, if you will. And if they're right, then yeah, maybe they can differentiate on that specificity. The other way that they're thinking they may do that is through relationship with Verily, which is a you know spinoff of Google, where they're going to actually take a look at the different you know components that make uh, or cause RA, and then try and show that wow, these people tend to respond much much better to fulgotinib than to other other drugs. Yep. So let's move on to Gilead's third and final growth opportunity that we want to discuss today, which is in oncology. Gene therapy obviously is is has massive promise as I'm not going to say curative because you know there there are a lot of relapses still occurring for some of these people who are being treated with things like uh, CAR T therapies, um, but it it could dramatically reshape how we treat patients with various cancers, specifically blood cancers. And you know they bought Kite Pharma for I think what was it, Christine, eleven eleven billion something billion that was twelve billion. Yeah, right around there. Yeah, last year to get into this space. And Kite's already got its first drug on the market, Yescarta. And Yescarta um, has an opportunity, you know, really to help late stage patients that have very few treatment options. And as a result, um, people think that this could be a billion dollar drug. There is a phase three trial that's ongoing right now, Zuma 7, that could elevate its use to second line as a second line treatment for people with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. If that trial reads out uh, well, then yeah, I think you've got a good shot here at at, at least hundreds of millions of dollars in sales, if not uh, in the billion dollar plus category. Right now in Q1 sales were only about 40 million though. Yeah. And ignoring the price tag, because that's its own question, I do think that the Kite acquisition was pretty smart strategically for Gilead Sciences. They've wanted to get into oncology for a while. Um, Investors will recall that they had a drug called Zydelig, which ended up totally failing based on a bad safety uh, profile. And so now they're turning to this new CAR-T therapy, which, granted, is not 100% safe, um, particularly this first generation of CAR-T therapies to hit the market. But yes, Scarta is just that first generation, and so they will hopefully be able to come up with more drugs that use this CAR-T process that come after Yascarta um, and are safer. They, at that point, will have more treatment centers that are up and running because the actual administration process for CAR-T is ridiculously complex and requires specialized uh, training and certification in that administration. Their goal is to get centers up that cover 80% of covered lives. So hopefully that uh, will continue to go well. It looks like insurance coverage for Yescarta is also going as planned, where most patients are covered by their commercial plans. Medicare is covering it. Um, and so, yeah, peak sales for Yescarta are a little bit under $3 billion, but hopefully there will be more drugs uh, from the kite segment of Gilead Sciences to come. I will put the asterisk out there that there is competition in this space. There are plenty of other companies working on CAR-T therapies, but I do think that this is an enormous market, and it 
probably has room for multiple players. I have no plans on selling my Gilead Sciences shares, just to bottom line it for for our listeners, right? It's in my retirement account. I'm going to hold on to it for long term. Um, they've got $32 billion in cash. That gives them a ton of uh, financial flexibility to go out there and, and invest in R&D and buy other companies. They generate a tremendous amount of operating cash flow. They have uh, industry best margins, and they pay a dividend. And then it's a relatively competitive dividend that they've increased for three consecutive years. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and wait and see how these other projects come out. Yeah, my ultimate conclusion here is similar. I think I might be a little bit less bullish than you. I am not sure that I'm going to sell my shares, but I'm certainly thinking about it. It does have that nice 3.5% dividend yield. And I think eventually the growth will be there. But I, I think barring a big acquisition that the market reacts well to, this stock will be in the same place nine months from now, 12 months from now. That's just speculation on my part. So for me, it's like, yes, I'm a long-term investor. I want to sit and hold Gilead for a long time. But I also do question if there are better places for my money at this point. So anyway, I realize that we have gone super duper long on Gilead. I think we're at 25 minutes or so already. So I'm thinking, Todd, if you don't mind, let's put a pin in this and come back to it maybe next week and do a part two where we cover Celgene. What do you say? I think that makes a tremendous amount of sense because there's some really, really cool data that came out at ASCO last week on Celgene that our investors will want to know. So stay tuned for part two, everyone. Yeah, I, I would hate to have to rush uh, the Celgene component of the show because I think it'll be hopefully just as interesting as the Gilead part. So hang tight, listeners. Um, sorry for the, the poor planning on our part, but hopefully we'll be uh, back with an even more in-depth show than we otherwise would be able to do on Celgene next week. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Ann Henry. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!